Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm pleased to say that I'm in the office of Kirsty Hughes who has just given me her card and it says she is Chief Executive of Index, the, the voice of free expression. Modest kind of title, Kirsty. So tell me what you're up to now. You're quite fairly new to this job, I think. Is that right? Yes, I'm, I'm fairly new to this job. I, I joined Index, or Index on Censorship as its full name, which tells you it is about censorship and free expression. Uh, I joined at the start of April, so I can't quite say it's my okay. first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's our tea coming in. Thank you very much. No problem. Much appreciated. Very nice to get the tea. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, so I've I've just been in the role nine months, but Index is actually celebrating its 40th birthday this year. And we were set up in 1972. Um, And I I think we have a a very nice kind of founding story. we were set up as a magazine, and we still have a magazine today, but today we're also a more a broader, bigger organisation. Um, and the magazine was called Index on Censorship, and it was actually uh, a Russian dissident, because it was the time of the Soviet Union and the Cold War, a Russian literary dissident had approached some of the big names of English literature at the time, Stephen Spender and W.H. Auden, and said, can you do something to help me and fight back against this repression? And what they did was set up a magazine. Uh, and they published all sorts of things about free expression and censorship, but they also published people like Vaslav Havel, who became the Czech president but was a dissident playwright. They published Alexander Solzhenitsyn poems and essays. And actually, last week I was in New York for a work trip, and I met the, the original editor of Index on Censorship, so the guy who was doing my job. 40 years ago, a guy called Michael Scammell, who edited the magazine for eight years, uh, who's delighted, of course, that it's still there 40 years later. Yeah, I guess I encountered it towards the end of the Cold War. Like a lot of those institutions at that time, it was probably a bit tarred with the brush of front organisations <laughs> itself, right? I mean, I'm not sure that it got money from the CIA, but the Congress for Cultural Freedom that published Encounter, that Spender was involved with, much to his horror, turned out to have been funded by the CIA. So they were very complicated times. But when I first encountered, pardon the pun, the magazine, which would have been, I think, about 1988, I thought it was a fantastic magazine. I really enjoyed it. Apart from anything else, I actually liked the writing. I thought it was really good. And of course, the underlying uh, issues were terribly important. But when you look back on not just the last few months that you've been in the chair, as it were, but the period of the last 40 years, Index has now lived more than half its life out of the shadow of the Cold War. So what seem to have been some of the changes, do you think, that on the horizon or that you can look back and encounter when you think about other editors, executives, people involved and the different eras that it's gone through? I think. I mean, I think it does. It does have a, a fascinating history. We did. We did for our fortieth birthday uh, about a month ago. We did an event in London at King's Place, which is it hosts. It's a new building that hosts the Guardian and Observer, and it's also a new concert hall and gallery space. And they have mm-hmm. you can you can hold meetings there as well. So we had an event, uh, a poetry event, because mm-hmm. although a lot of what we do is about press freedom or politics, we also have this literary side, as I was explaining. Um, so we partly brought in some 
some new poets um, to sort of look at poetry and free expression in the future. We got Brian Patton wrote us a 40th birthday poem, which was wonderful often, or two rather, uh, which are in our magazine and on our website, I think. Um, but we also then pulled out a lot of poetry from the archives um, down the years of the different mm. issues. And it, w it was fascinating to see, uh, you know, we knew that we'd got back from the 70s a poem Alexander Solzhenitsyn had, had written but we, mm. but we also had poems from around the world not just from the Soviet bloc and mm. from Nobel Prize winners in Latin America and different mm. voices mm. out of Africa so I think I think the geographical spread um, and plus the quality and nature of the people is, is something quite extraordinary. Um, and I must just pick up on your CIA point because I've never heard anyone suggest we had CIA funding uh, or might, may have done. And in fact, talking to Michael Scammell, the, the mm. founding editor last mm. week, he was very interesting. He was saying they mostly worked either for nothing or for a pittance. So it was a real shoestring operation, although in, originally he explained to me the magazine was published by Random House. Mm -hmm. uh, but Random House was mainly a book publisher, so it wasn't a terribly good fit. But the chairman of Random House was very interested in these issues, and as you say, it was a complex period. But he apparently went off and was instrumental in setting up the first Helsinki Citizens Watch mm -hmm. that turned into Human Rights Watch. The Helsinki Accords. So, yeah. so there was a lot of stuff going on then. I think, I think as you say, though, we've been, we were very much rooted in that history of, of um, concern about suppression of dissent in the former Soviet Union, but 20 years, so over 20 years since the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and I think what you see when you look around the world is there's still a, a lot of battles about free speech. You've still got some obvious bad guys, so if we just want to do, in a sense, what we did before, we could focus just on, say, China or Iran or North Korea. We we would still focus on Russia. It may not be as bad as the Soviet days, but look at Pussy Riot, look at some of the controls on the internet in Russia today. Um, and we do write and comment on those sorts of countries, but actually we also shine the spotlight on the UK itself. We're very worried today about a lot of the criminalisation of social media of offensive comments on Twitter or Facebook or, or we look at what's happening to the internet in general and, and is, is that heading to be a more controlled environment? We very much hope not. Or, or look at the debates around that Innocence of Muslims film a few months ago um, and there were violent protests around the world and what are the cases when should you ever censor free speech? Are there any cases where we would agree with restricting free speech? So there's only plenty of obviously black and white bad cases to campaign against but there's also a lot of more complex yeah. cases yeah. and free speech is a fundamental right it's not the only right we all have a right not to be discriminated against we have a right to have a religion or not have a religion so so it's about how do all these pieces fit together look at the debates in the UK again about press freedom the Leveson report are we going to have some sort of statutory law that will set up a regulator for the British press? Would that destroy centuries of press freedom? So we're not, we're not short of issues. I think, I think some of the big changes, how pervasive those are around the world, and the internet is obviously is in the last issue. 20 years you know, key. I, I guess that the recent Leveson report, this inquiry that the British government set up into the way in which the bourgeois press medium you know, in Britain had gone about doing so-called investigative journalism or gossip journalism or whatever. Of course, that would not have happened had Nick Davies at the Grawniad 
not had an insider, presumably in the police force, who told him what was really mm. going on. Mm. And of course that would be outlawed if Lord Leveson had his right. way, because mm. he's one of the recommendations is precisely to stop, as I understand it, mm. that kind of interaction between the police and journalists. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think I think it is. And I think, um, I don't claim to have read all 2,000 words, but I have uh, words, pages of the report. No, words, words, I might have managed that. Everybody in, in this building would have read it. If it had been. <laughs> but I did read the, the executive summary, which is also more than 2,000 words. It's about 50 pages. And then I read some of the, the backup yeah. comments. Yeah. Um, but if you read just part of that executive summary that talks about the police, press relations and the press politicians' relations, I think especially the police get let off very lightly and the tone is different and, and tone matters because if you're saying this journalist wrecked someone's life or this journalist intruded into someone's privacy, yeah, that was it was wrong, it may have been terribly wrong, it may need, you know, very, very serious condemnation. Uh, but some of what we've we've heard about in the media and at Leveson suggests possibly corrupt behaviour by police, by some media, by politicians, at least allegedly mm. so. And Leveson says the police took some wrong decisions or bad decisions, but each time he's trying to say that they're very, very decent, good chaps and it was all done in good faith and there is no systemic problem in the management or in anything else. And as you were indicating, he suggests that any whistleblowers in the police should have a system within the police mm -hmm. to complain, which is at best naive, to be frank. Um, and in blue line. And he wants records of media police contact. And as you say, that's not how decent investigative journalism works, whether it's with police sources, political sources, corporate sources, or other sources. So whatever one does with Leveson, you cannot throw the baby out with a bathwater, mm. or you will not have a free press anymore. My sense was that he was perhaps trying to make sure that he didn't have Metropolitan Police, which is very effective as a lobby group at a populist level, basically having him derided in the bourgeois media. Uh, and this was a, probably a tactical manoeuvre in some, in some ways to go very easily, easy on them. I wonder, I see it, I see it a little bit more, I wonder if it's more... I, I, when I read that tone of that part of the report, I can almost see him in court with police witnesses and the, the judge and the police trust each other and work closely mm -hmm. together and a bit part of the same So he believes club. it, probably believes I it I think too. he maybe be believes <laughs> it too. And I was interviewing, I haven't written it up for our website, but I will at some point. I've interviewed um, Sir Hugh Ord, who's mm -hmm. the head of ACPO, which is the Association of Chief Police Officers in the UK, and he, he was one of the sort of front-runner candidates to run the Metropolitan mm -hmm. Police, so he didn't get it. Um, we were talking about free expression in general, which was why I was interviewing him, but I said to him, well, didn't he think he got let off, the police got let <laughs> off a bit lightly? Uh, I did. Wow, good on you. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, he's a, he's a very amiable man, but he did a little bit bristle at that one and say, <laughs> no, he didn't think so. But... Um, and that it proved the police hadn't done anything, you know, significantly wrong. Um, but I think there are, yes. And he said, well, look, you're interviewing me now. Why shouldn't that be on the record? Why shouldn't I tell somebody? But, I mean, it was an on-the-record interview. But there, when you're trying to get sources and insider information, then it becomes murkier. In terms of religion, you've already mentioned questions over Islam, which clearly is one of the very complicated topics in so-called free speech today. Mm. 
Um, but other religions too have mm. their moments, as do different racial ethnic groups, different mm. nationalities and so on. If you look back at the history of Hollywood, say, you find everybody from the British to the Japanese governments a century ago complaining about representations of their peoples in Hollywood. You get uh, an alliance of Cuba, Mexico, Spain, Canada, a whole bunch of uh, Ibero-American countries complaining about Hollywood stereotypes of Mexicans in the silent film era yes. uh, and engaging in boycotts and mm. so on. Mm. Uh, so there are large numbers of groups over lengthy periods that have concerns mm. about a sort of free license to represent them mm. from outside. Mm. Now, it's, a, it's a long, long and complex history. And I wondered where Index places itself on that spectrum, if you like, mm. of free speech is absolute versus what you were saying a moment ago, namely people have rights to privacy, they have rights to perhaps represent themselves. People, Yes, people do have rights to privacy and they, ha they have rights to not be discriminated at, at work um, or, or, or outside of work in their hotel, say, on grounds of race or sexual orientation or yeah. religious belief or anything else, and they have a, a right to a religious belief or not, so a sort of freedom of conscience as well. So, so freedom of expression, I think, is often complementary to those rights. It goes with those rights. And, and sometimes people think privacy and free expression are obviously opposites, and there, there are cases, and I'm sure we'll talk about them. But I think if you look at the online world, where people are very worried about invasions of privacy and the amount of data Facebook's getting, or how easy it is for the CIA or MI5 or anybody else to s survey and monitor what's going on and hoover up lots of data on them. And, you know, if you, you and I are having a conversation that's being recorded that's going to be public, if we wanted to have a private conversation about something for some reason, we would need to know it was private to express freely whatever that private thing was. And if there's a risk because we're having that conversation on email or we're in a country like Azerbaijan where our flat might be bugged, it changes what you say. So privacy and free expression in many ways go together, but in other ways they, they, they are opposites. When you look at the phone hacking scandal, there, there was no justification for breaking the law and intruding into people's lives in that way. But there will sometimes be cases where maybe it's a politician, maybe it's a powerful corporate figure, where there are so-called public interest reasons to, mm -hmm. to delve into someone more than you might think is a good ethical standard, and on occasion more than the law says you can. Mm. And that's why there are some laws, but not all laws, that say there can be a public interest defence if a journalist steps over the line. Sure, sure. Thinking of some of these religious cases, issues of, say, the representation of uh, the Prophet in mm. Islamic law, L-O-R-E and L-A-W, we've seen in the last few years major conflagrations emerging, at least supposedly, mm. as a consequence of this being done in Denmark, in the United States, in France. There are three cases that come to mind, for me anyway, uh, where cartoonists or... Uh, amateur filmmakers, whoever they may be, say, you know, it's my right to make and do whatever I want, and if I get published, then that's good, and if you don't want to watch it, you don't want to look at it, don't. Sure, yes. Uh, versus a position that says, this is completely in contradistinction to my religious faith, to in fact what is said to be God's law, uh, and it is the responsibility of the state in the country in which this is produced to discipline these people. In the same way as it would be if they showed 
naked pictures of a member of the royal family against his will. So what? What? Does I the index have a stance? We on do. That kind we of do. Ha- we one? do have a stance on on that sort of issue. I think, um, I, and I think it is complex. So it's it's multi layered. Um, I think we cannot have open democratic societies that respect everybody's rights and that allow knowledge to to develop and progress and change if you cannot have open debate and challenge people's beliefs, whether it's a belief about the world being flat or round, or whether it's a belief about there being a God or not being a God, or what sort of God, uh, or what the rules you should follow um, if you're following God, or, or whatever, you have to be able to have robust debate about that. And that's why a lot of international law as well has always drawn distinctions between uh, the right not to be discriminated against and, and a lot of hate speech laws apply to, to racial and eth- ethnic groups. They don't always apply uh, to religious groups because if, if you start, given that, as you were indicating earlier, there's so many religions in the world as, as well as no religions, you know, atheism, humanism, however people want to de- describe it. If you start saying nobody must be offended in this global interconnected world, then we'll shut down all conversation. And, and what worries me a lot, and it worries Index a lot, is that I think there is a growing intolerance. You see it in the UK, uh, as well as in, so it's not just about majority religious or Islamic countries, an intolerance of offence. And that's why you see, see cases where somebody makes maybe a very bad taste joke on Twitter, um, and they're suddenly finding they're being arrested by the police. And actually today, interestingly enough, the, the British director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer, is due to bring out some interim guidelines directed at reducing the number of times police pick people up on Twitter and Facebook. So it's going to be very interesting to unpack those. I mean, I I was at an event about a month ago in London discussing the Innocence of Muslims film um, on a panel. And the, the chair at the start said, well, how many people on the panel and in the audience have seen the film? And the answer was about half, including only half of the people on the panel had actually <laughs> seen it. And yet everybody had a view as to whether it was offensive or not. Um, and we're not saying you shouldn't or should find something offensive. We're saying if you find something offensive, then that doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. Your offence is my right to free speech and there you know you raise questions of naked pictures of the of the queen or or whoever it might be of the royal family i think the the other issue here is about editorial control so where is it the law where do you want the law to step in and where do you want is it the editor of the newspaper the moderator of the website the the film producer the company where should it be about standards and norms that you can expect so you know if you go on a such and such chat room that those are the norms for that one if you go on a different one everything goes therefore don't get upset when you find something offensive so i think we have <coughs> we have more choices and control about what we do and don't see even in the internet age um you know a lot of people demonstrating against that film have not seen it so what you're talking about is more information rather than less information instead of censorship tell people what they're about to get and then they can decide. But that is, along with your endorsement of the idea of liberal critique as a means of ameliorating society, a fundamentally secular position, um, which I completely subscribe to. I loathe all forms of religion equally. Sorry, I hate them. But the fact is that for people who are true believers, Mm. this is a superordinate category 
that subsumes and is massively more important than the notion of a secular good. So, you know, you've got a superordinate category, which is, in a sense, an enlightenment one. Mm -hmm. Here is reason, here is rationality, mm -hmm. here is liberalism. This will make everything better if we can apply it decently. You know, again, something to which I subscribe, versus people who say, mm -hmm. actually, this is not man and woman's world to rule. I think I think I think you're right. I think there there are those fundamentally different ways of looking at the world, but I don't think it's about a division between believers and non-believers in a a god of some sort because you will find a lot of people who who have strong religious beliefs who support a, an enlightenment secular society. I think I think where we would draw the line in indexes is, is on speech that's a direct and clear incitement to violence. Um, I know some people who I've, I've debated with on radio panels recently in London who would say not even that the only you know violence is wrong but that's the responsibility of whoever is violent and so even incitement to violence is okay but I wouldn't go that far uh, if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that suggests you constri constrain speech but only when it's absolutely vital, and it may be for public order reasons, it may be for violence reasons. It may, and this gets into the murky ground we're discussing, you, you, it may, according to that declaration, be constrained for reasons of public morality. Um, I think, you know, if you go all the way to a, a society, including the political order, based on belief, and, and, and saying we're not distinguishing the belief and the believer. So you can say I shouldn't sort of aggressively attack you in a public place, I mean verbally attack you, uh, but I can attack vehemently a particular set of beliefs. And if you're going to set up a whole society that says, no, we, we won't allow you to do that, then, then that may be the choice of a society, but it's certainly, yes, it's very, very different to the secular and enlightenment view of how do you get... To, to progress in knowledge, in science, in, in ideas of how we behave. And if you look back down the centuries, you know, if there hadn't been some of that free thinking, we, we wouldn't be remotely where we are now. Albeit much of it practiced by slavers, of course. But anyway, mm. I, I wanted to, we've only got about 10 minutes left because okay. Kirsty's got a very busy day. I had two things I wanted to mm. um, hone in on, and maybe you can help me with. The first is I wanted to give you, an, a, for instance, a very particular one that isn't one we've talked about, but that's sure. troubled me a lot since I, I've been out of Britain for 30 years. I just mm. moved back. Uh, that's troubled me a lot. And the second one is to talk a bit, just for five minutes perhaps, about index projects that are going on at the mm. moment, because this is yes, okay. partly meant to feature you guys. Fine. <laughs> so my question is about a, British, a white British football player named John Terry. I don't, I don't know if you know who he mm. is. And... Some listeners may, some listeners may not. So this year, he was recorded, not orally, but visually, saying to a black British footballer, Anton Ferdinand, uh, words that were deemed to be offensive, such that he was arrested by the police, taken mm. to court, found not guilty of aggravated something. Mm. I, don't, I can't remember the exact mm. words, but mm. using the words that were claimed. But then the football association or league, whatever is the governing body of the sport in which he plays, mm. suspended him on the grounds that he had said these things. Yes. Now, I'm going to say the words that I think he, he used, because I think it's important people mm. hear them, and I'm allowed on this podcast. He called this guy, um, I, he said, I did not call you, supposedly, mm. a fucking black cunt. Mm. Now, what troubled me in all of this mm. was that the pejorative misogynistic word... Was ignored. Was ignored, mm. and what mattered was... 
Mm. fucking and black mm. uh, and uh, black of course in and of itself is not mm. considered necessarily mm. a derogatory term but mm. when allied to this derisory description of women's mm. genitalia mm. women in general is considered a problem and very little of the discussion that I saw mm. in terms of the police the courts the football authorities mm. and journalism actually addressed that part of it. Mm. And I've I seen this right. a lot that, yeah. and I wondered about that. Mm. When you get this kind of double-barreled element where mm. it's, it's really about race, but sexism is used to make the point. Yes. And then the race bit is what attracts the authorities' attention. Mm. No, I think that's that's right, and and I I had concerns about exactly that as well because the whole debate about did he say it is this a police matter is it just a football association matter how do you deal with this should it be criminalised was as you say all about the black word and not about being derogatory towards women and so we we seem to be in a <clears throat> in a moment in time where as I said before on the one hand there, there seems to me to be this growing sensitivity to offence. Um, that's that's not all of it is not bad if we're in a society that's saying look this sort of casual racist language is not okay um, that can be a good I mean from from my kind of index point of view the question is we don't always want to criminalize that but it doesn't mean we don't think it's it's undesirable and that a society shouldn't be you know in general saying well we're controlling this football stadium racism has obviously been a, and still is a huge problem in football as a sport so you might argue that's why they focused on that more where you don't see this offense and debate and discussion is so much around women and the portrayal of women that's and the true. language used towards women and what's acceptable and I think for us one of one of the new issues we're just about to start looking at in index is something we're calling access to free expression do we all have the same access to it. Not the sort of senses in Iran or China, but what about people who are illiterate? Even in the UK, never mind in India, there are actually people who are illiterate, therefore they don't have full access to free expression. What about discriminated against groups, which may be women, it may be ethnic minorities, do they get on the media? Well, not anything like as much as men. So we're starting to, to explore some of those issues. Um, but I do, th I do think you know, the more you kind of put speech as controlled by the law rather than speech as controlled by football clubs, by, as I was saying before, spaces on the web, by the, the you know, we have our own kind of rules and ethics at Index. If, if someone was swearing and being either racist or misogynistic in our meeting in, in the workplace, uh, we would say that was unacceptable, but we wouldn't, unless we were being violent on the whole, we wouldn't expect to call the police. Um, so I think you're right, once you get into those discussions about standards, who's setting the rules, is it more concern about one group in society than another? But for us, because of our preoccupation with keeping speech as free as possible, it's also about, is it about legal controls or is it about other ways of other creating ways environments yeah. we all feel happy? And I think, I mean, going back to what you were talking about before, you know, the religion, the belief, the differences across country, I think... Mm -hmm. There's always been some globalisation, you know, the Silk Road was centuries ago, we always think we're more globalised than anyone else. But with the internet and mass media around the world, we are seeing much, much more interconnection. So you used to be able to say, okay, well, in India there's those sorts of standards about religious insult and they're quite sensitive and they're quite tightly drawn. And in the UK they're drawn differently, or in Denmark they're drawn differently. And now we're seeing it's very hard 
to have different standards in different countries, and that's accentuating this the, this debate, but also the clash, the, whether it's the cartoons or it's the, the racial insult, the gender insult or something else. A very good answer. And one of the things in Argentina that's a key element in terms of trying to think about rights to communication as fundamental rights of cultural citizenship alongside political and economic mm. citizenship is, you know, they have an expression, the left has an expression that's used in Argentina over the last, say, 15 years to describe what should be the rights of migrant workers. Uh, you know, have a job, um, be alphabetic, i.e. literate, yes. uh, and uh, be a citizen. You know, that's their, mm. their slogan. And in fact, if you go back and look at John Rawls and the theory of justice in the early 70s, it's very similar. And almost all the new written constitutions of the last century particularly the last 50 years, include something that is effectively a cultural right or a right to communication. Mm. Mm. Anyway. Um, but I, think, I do think sorry, that's sorry. very important. I mean, I was at this, this big international summit on the internet a month ago in, in Baku, which is Azerbaijan, so it's a rather strange country to discuss internet freedom. <laughs> well, Mr. Blair uh, was no doubt taking money to say what a wonderful country I, Yes, was. well, one, one, one of those, or more than one of those countries, I think. Um, <laughs> but there's some very brave dissidents in those countries as well, and we did talk talk to them but actually there it was a big international gathering even so of different companies activists charities and, and so on and one of the most interesting discussions i was part of is whether access to the internet should be called a human right mm. um or is that you know do people think that's a bit silly is it like saying access to a television or access to a phone is a human right but actually the internet has become such a pervasive thing if, if you're not if you don't have the access because you're either too poor or your country's too poor, it doesn't have the infrastructure or you're illiterate or, or digitally illiterate, it's, it's certainly an issue of social concern. Whether we should include it in a human rights charter is you know, an, uh, maybe a, a, another level up on the discussion. But I, what I like about the discussion, at least, is it's precisely opening up these issues. And going back to Leveson, where we mm. almost mm. started, um, although we're arguing very strongly that there should not be statutory underpinning of a press regulator, because we think politicians can't be trusted to vote mm. specifically on the press, a lot of people have argued back and said, but look, it's not about, you know, like your freedom of expression versus mine. It's about the male and Murdoch. It's about huge corporate power. And they have a really unequally loud voice and they can sort of harass other people and trash their views and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think there is a real issue there about concentration of media, about corporate power mm -hmm. over the, the airwaves and the print and the, the internet cables. Um, but again, you know, as ever, with a free speech hat on, we tend to say, yes, let's discuss those issues of power, Let, let's really explore them, let's stand up for those whose voice is being restricted, but let's be very cautious about specific press laws or laws that are going to control what we say beyond, I mean, we're not saying we should live in an anarchic environment, you know, yes, we, we should have laws about libel, we want to change the English ones, but there's got to be some sort of defamation approach, there's got to be some sort of criminal laws for corruption, phone hacking was illegal and so it should have been, but at least they made the penalties much more severe in the last few years and, you know, mm. the environment mm. on that has changed, even if belatedly, so there should be laws, but I think laws that specifically target the press or specifically try and control how we discuss and debate so that we're all nice middle of the road liberal people is just no way to actually run a society. 
And finally, I wondered if you could tell us just a wee bit about Index's current projects. I imagine most people listening to this will be very familiar with the organisation, but regardless of that, what your publications are and mm. where you can be found on this fabled internet of, to which you referred. <laughs> We, well, we can be found, our web address is indexoncensorship.org mm-hmm. uh, and then we have a magazine of the, same, of the same name which also goes into university libraries around the world so if any of your listeners are students or academics mm-hmm. it goes into 5,000 libraries around the world it's a quarterly magazine um, and I think what's, what's interesting about Index is how it developed over the 40 years that we discussed at the start from being a magazine with a quite a strong literary component is we turned into an organisation that today we employ quite a lot of journalists. So we don't only do press freedom, uh, we do wider freedom of speech issues and we do artistic freedom of expression issues. But, but we write as journalists about free speech issues around the world. We write with our staff, we also commission from journalists around the world, we have some sort of stringers, part-time correspondents around the world who will regularly write for us from Moscow, from Tunisia, from Mexico, so we're, you know, we're not at the scale of, say, Amnesty International, but we actually do have that kind of global reach. And we, we think part of promoting and defending free expression, which if you like is our core mission, is actually just to write about it and to debate it so that we do have some advocacy and lobbying campaigning work. We, we're campaigning to change the English libel laws so that London isn't, as they call it, the capital of libel tourism. <laughs> but we have quite a strong belief in the power of just information and debate. So, so we're not a typical NGO because we've got this big journalism side setting the ideas out, allowing the ideas to be debated. We have events that we put on, we're trying to do more events around the world, not just in the UK, and we often set those up as panels, so we're not just trying to promulgate our views, to some extent we are, but we also think the more people are aware that there is a human right to free expression, they'll have their own views on exactly what that means and how it should be expressed. Look at the huge debates around copyright on the internet, you know, where we don't have a firm view of how you deal with that problem, but it's a new problem. So we're very keen to engage in discussion, report where we see really, really egregious cases of censorship, and, and then pick one or two issues, like keeping big issues, like keeping the internet free, um, and unpack what that means and decide who we need to lobby, which decision maker might keep it free or make it unfree, and, and then act accordingly. Well, Kirsty, thank you so much for uh, speaking to us and all the best in the newish job Thank you. and in the work of Index. Well, and all the best for your podcasts. Cheers. <laughs>